0: Create. Innovate. Collaborate. Have you ever felt depressed at work, like you just don't want to go today and deal with the stress and anxiety of endless workloads and unrealistic expectation in an unsupportive environment? Well, you're not alone. Workplace mental health issues are costing Australian workplaces $11 billion per annum. Today on Beyond Ideas, we go beyond mental health and I want to ask the question, is workplace mental health really an issue and is there a solution? I'm Brad Twine, I'm your host, and with me today I have one of the world's foremost thought leaders in workplace depression and mental health. He is an author, international speaker and media authority, as well as a founder of a successful consulting practice focused on shining a light on that forbidden topic, workplace mental health. Graham Cowan. Graham, welcome to the show.
1: Thanks, Brad. Lovely to be here.
0: Graham, credentials need no introduction. You've written four books now. Back to the Brink was your breakthrough book. Uh, you followed that up with Back to the Brink 2. Then you've written other books, The Elephant in the Boardroom. You've been instrumental in the launch of Are You OK Day? And you consult and speak around the world to CEOs on the CEO a topic of mental fitness in the workplace, which is an area. Which is so vital today. Um, before we get into talking a little bit more about these topics, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and what led you to devoting your life to shining a light on this topic?
1: Yeah, sure. I in two thousand, I was the managing director of an executive search firm that specialised in e-commerce. So this is going back a, a long while. And uh, in March, we, we focused very much on. Um, internet companies, how to make money out of the internet this is uh, seventeen years ago, but uh, as you may be aware in March uh, two thousand we had the tech crash, and our business really um, shrunk hugely overnight you know in a very short period of time the phones stopped ringing and um, and I felt huge stress from this tried to really keep doing the same things and it didn't really work um, in a very very short period of time i had a really really bad episode of depression. I lost my job. After a period of time, my my twenty year marriage broke down, and I became estranged from my kids. And that began an episode of depression, which my psychiatrist described as the worst ever treated. I, you know, went through twenty three different variants of medication. I was hospitalised. I had suicide attempts, and and it was really only after. A period of time that I started to come back from that and that involved of course good medical care but primarily it was around exercise, it was around reconnecting with family and friends and, and finally writing that first book, Back from the Brink, where I interviewed prominent and everyday Australians who had overcome depression, that gave me a real sense of meaning and uh, through that book I was asked to, um, you know, speak to the media um, and do interviews on this topic and through my books that's how I met Gavin Larkin um, the, the founder of R U okay, and joined him to, to start it in that first year and then over the last um, three years I've probably spoken to about 5,000 leaders have gone through my half-day course on how to create what I call thriving tribes where there's equal emphasis on well-being and performance so that's a quick summary of uh, how I got to this place and I'm really passionate about this area because I really don't want people to go through the pain that I went, to, went through and I just see there's critical things that need to be addressed uh, to avoid that.
0: You speak firsthand from experience which, you know, must be difficult at times to, to have to, you know, bear your experience so openly when you do speak with, with people.
1: Yeah, you know, it certainly was the first time, but I have got quite used to it now. And what I've really learned is that when I share my story, it gives other people permission to share their story. And stories are a wonderful way to break down stigma. So I encourage people, if they have been through it and they feel like they're in a good place now, to share what's happened to them in the workplace, or if they've even supported someone to share that because in my seminars I ask people to raise their hand if they know someone close to them that struggles with depression or an anxiety disorder and always you know 80 90 percent of the audience put their hand up and yet when we're going through it we feel so alone and uh, it it is something that touches all of us and uh, it you know there's just new new things have to be done to address it.
0: Yeah that that's fantastic Graham, and I completely agree I've I've seen it myself. I've gone through the anxiety and depression myself in the workplace, both working as an entrepreneur and within corporations, uh, you know, when I've had to to work within corporations as well. You spend your life working with organisations and from my experience, I see it every day. I mean, I commute from the Central Coast and I can sit on that train on the days I have to go to Sydney and I can see how miserable people are about having to be on a train at 6.15 in the morning, which is probably then compounded, but for a lot of them, of, of sitting in unsupportive work environments. I mean, what is the state of depression and mental health within the workplace today?
1: Well, it's pretty well documented that it is the largest cause of lost productivity, you know, through absenteeism and presenteeism, and you highlighted some numbers when you introduced the session It's estimated by... PwC to cost the Australian economy $11 billion, and uh, $4 billion of that approximately is uh, absenteeism, which you can readily see, but presenteeism is $7 billion. So that's where people are at work, but they're not fully productive, and I reckon that's a conservative element, quite frankly, because uh, it, you know there are lots of people that do anything to hide that they're struggling from this because there is still great stigma in, in um, admitting that you've, you've struggled.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I've, known, I've seen one stat um, which states that out of a team of 12, typically you'll have three people that live with depression and anxiety disorder or substance abuse. But those figures are extraordinary. And I'm going to ask you a question, and, and I know the reaction to this is probably how long is a piece of string. But there must be a few root causes that are common here. But the question is, what's causing this? Are there some root causes that are really causing this phenomenon to happen?
1: Well, I think there are in the workplace. And and one of the, I think, key root causes is is the whole digital revolution, because what that means in the workplace is significant change. You know, customers are wanting more features. They're wanting 24-hour access and that inside an organization means that you have to collaborate continually both inside and outside the organization. And that in turn leads to continual restructures in organization. You know, if you ever talk to colleagues in, in business, particularly big business, they'll, they'll talk about the latest restructure and it's not like it's a one-off event, it just continues. That's compounded by mergers and acquisitions. So that's some of the root causes in the workplace. In the uh, Societies in general, there's a couple of root causes as well, and, and that is that we are exercising much less as a race than we ever did before. You know, 100 years ago, the average Australian used to walk about 13 kilometres a day. You know, the average Australian now probably walks, you know, one or two. And, uh, and then the other element, which I think is quite significant, is that more people than ever before are living by themselves, and there's nothing wrong per se with living by yourselves, but it, it's been shown that it can lead to a greater level of uh, uh, stress and, and lack of connection. And, uh, and if you look at the figures of, um, you know, the number of single people living in Australia, it's never been at a high level.
0: That's really interesting. So really what you, you know, just to, to reiterate what you said there, within the enterprise itself, technology is leading to constant change. And I think we can all agree on that, that that's a big issue. But then outside of work, there's that le- lack of exercise and also that feeling of isolation as well. I mean, it's not just medium to large enterprises that suffer from this, is it? I mean, you know, I speak to a lot of startup founders and they often say that they're prone to severe anxiety and bouts of depression Would you say it's the same and similar causes that lead to this or is it slightly different for entrepreneurs and founders who who are working within their own businesses?
1: Well, you know, it is slightly different, but there's lots and lots of common elements, you know. Um, I guess at the end of the day, there's lots of things outside our control. You know, as a founder or an entrepreneur, you know, you can do all your pitches, you seek funding, but you don't know whether the money's going to come through. You can set up partnerships. You don't know if they're come through. Now you can influence that. But many times there's things greater than you that are going to influence events. And I think lots of people, whether it's small business or large business, spend too much time worrying about things they can't control. And, uh, you know, it's one thing uh, to focus on things directly in your control and, and to be active about addressing that. But there are many, many things outside our control and uh, a lot of people, you know, myself included, at times spend too much time, you know, thinking about worst case scenario and worrying about things you, you, you don't have control over.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's a really difficult thing and and I guess it points back to that root cause you mentioned, which is change, you know, within a large enterprise, the changes the constantly shifting landscape, what you just highlighted there, that for founders and entrepreneurs... The change is really, you know, what happens every day? Do I have enough money to meet payroll? You know, am I going to get this funded in time? So it ultimately comes back to that root cause of change. I, I do want to just take a quick side diversion for a moment. I do want to talk about alcohol and drugs. And I remember a time not so long ago when I was building my last startup that for a period of about 12 months, I would have been out two to three times a week at dinner with clients and and quite often those clients would polish off between one to three bottles of wine over dinner, you know, and these are senior executives, they're not workers, but they're doing this four to five nights a week, you know, and I can speak firsthand of the cocaine epidemic within the banking sector internationally. I've seen that myself. You know, is alcohol and other substances also a cause of this problem? Or is it more what we're seeing as the manifestation of the problem or or the result of the problem?
1: Yeah, it's probably a little bit of both. You know, there's no doubt that using alcohol, um, cocaine, dope, whatever, is is like self-medicating. You know, it's escape from the stress. It's a way to help turn off. But, you know, like all drugs, they... Often have the reverse effect. You know, for example, alcohol is a depressant. You know, if you have, if you're able to stop at one, one and a half glasses each night, you know that's that's fine and has been shown to have actually quite good health benefits. But as you describe, having you know one, two, three bottles of wine every night goes way beyond safe uh, um, health elements, and it, it is a depressant. It, it works hard there. Uh, so I think the stress and the disorientation is, is leading people to self-medicate, but, you know, some of the other elements uh, in people's personal lives of, you know, not feeling connected or um, not feeling balanced uh, is leading them to try some of these substances as well. The The end result is, uh, is not good.
0: Are you finding as you work with CEOs within the organisations that you work with? that if the leader within the organisation is depressed, if they're feeling, I guess, disconnected from the overall mission and vision of the organisation, that this has a knock-on effect through the organisation and leads to higher instances of depression and anxiety within, within the workplace of that organisation?
1: Yeah, the, the, there is um, some very interesting studies on this. And if a leader... Um, you know, model sustainable work practices. If they incorporate good work practices themselves, it has a flow-on effect to everyone that that works for them, and it cascades down the organisation. So that's very much the message I um, share in the in the in the leadership sh- sessions that I run. Is that the best thing you can do <laughs> is to model great behaviours for yourself? And you know, I had a very good example. I, I ran a a session for the, the the group finance director of one of Australia's top 10 companies. And, you know, in my sessions, I really talk about, you know, what is your one thing, the one thing that you can do that really, if you do that, everything else seems to take care of itself, where you're really present, where you really take care of themselves. And in this um, person's case, his one thing was running, you know, he, he would run for Forty-five minutes every day, and after my session, he would re- religiously do that. And when I spoke to other people that uh, were part of his group, and he led a finance group that had about fifteen hundred people around the around the world, um, it had that flawn effect. You know, it gave them permission to do stuff, to go to the gym or to go for a walk at lunchtime. So, leaders walking the talk is a critical success factor for changing culture in organisations.
0: That's a really good point that you've raised. I think, and and a really important thread we've hit on. I mean, if if it starts at the leader, what what is the solution here? And I know you've spent years working in this area, and your solutions keep evolving. But is there a high level overview of what the solution is to this?
1: Yeah, I think the really critical elements is that it can't be viewed as something extra, you know, like like something really onerous and. Uh, something to add to your to-do list, good leadership leads to both well-being and performance, and it has equal emphasis on those two. So one of the first things that I really emphasize with um, the leadership group, and I'm talking about the top leadership group, is the need to link these initiatives to the vision and values of the organization. And uh, you know, I can give you uh, you know some examples of that. I've done some work with Ramsey Healthcare. Their vision is people caring for people. And so you can easily link, you know, employee well-being to we care for each other, people caring for people. I've done work with ACT Health where their, their vision is your health, our priority. Now, that's for their external stakeholders, but if they also link that to their employees. You know, your, our employee health is our priority as well. So I think that is a really, really uh, important element. The second thing is that leaders actually walk the talk, you know, that they do this themselves. There's, you, you can have a million policies written, but what a leader actually does and says speaks much, much louder than, you know, what's written, you know, on an internet or something like that. And, and I think the third element, which is really critical, is that you need to think in three levels when you're looking at, at putting plans together to address this. One level is the individual level, and so provide the individual with skills on how to look after themselves, how to make their own health a priority, how to incorporate it within a workday. The second level is at the tribal level or the the larger team level, and that's how we can look out for each other. And a lot of really high-performing teams have as their core What's called psychological safety, where they really look out for each other. They have a real innate sense of, of seeing when someone isn't doing well and reaching out. And then the third level is at organisational level, and this could be around um, remuneration, performance management, and the systems that you have to support um, organisational organisational mental well being. So you know, that's a quick summary or an overview, um, but, it, but it, this doesn't happen overnight. You have to have a, a multi-year plan to, uh, to make headway.
0: So going back to, you mentioned Ramsey Healthcare a moment ago, you've done quite a bit of work with Ramsey. How is that starting to appear now within the workplace itself with some of these strategies that they're implementing?
1: Well, it's interesting because I actually started working with Ramsey 20 years ago, and I originally, I was working at a headhunter at the time, and I placed uh, the guy, Chris Rex, who became the Chief Operating Officer. The following year, I moved into a culture change uh, division, and Chris uh, commissioned me to help articulate the values of the organisation and to come up with the, the vision of the organisation. So I went to an, and ran about 20 focus groups around um, the country, and from that, we came up with that vision statement, that people caring for people and what's called the Ramsey Way. And you can see the Ramsey Way on their website. They just, it's how they work together. It's their values. It's their ethos. And this has just been embedded in their organization thoroughly over the years. They recruit against the Ramsey Way. They Chris Rex, who, who was the CEO up until just recently, he retired, He's told me they've knocked back acquisitions which made sense financially because they were contrary to the Ramsey Way. They have the they have the Ramsey Way on every every hospital, all every department on their computer screens. They do their performance management around the Ramsey Way, and looking at it as a whole, um, you know, 20 years down the track, they now have an injury rate less than half. As Safe Work Australia's um, target for healthcare workers, so that you know they've delivered a, a really caring and supportive environment, but they've also massively outperformed financially over those twenty years. The Australian stock market has returned to shareholders a total return of four hundred and sixty-seven percent. Over that same period, Ramsey's returned over six thousand five hundred percent. So you know that they're they're. The, a wonderful example about how wellbeing and 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 focusing on performance equally can lead to sustainable business improvement
0: those results are astounding and and I can really get I mean I've I've done some work with Ramsey and the Ramsey way is so embedded into their ethos and I completely agree with that and I guess it's a great example of of how you can incorporate this this culture of taking care of each other as part of your corporate culture, just taking it down to the level of the individual, I mean, one of your more well-recognised quotes is, master our mood, we master our life. Um, you know, in many of the presentations that, that I've heard you give, you've developed a piece of IP called the moodometer, which I think is fantastic. Um, could you describe what that is and, and why it's so important at the individual level in terms of, you know, regulating your own mental health?
1: Yes, uh, Brendan, it's probably just worth just mentioning briefly about the origins of it because I was very unwell for a long period of time and went to a psychiatrist for a long time and he always asked me to rate my mood and, you know, 0 to 10. And one day I asked him why he did that and he said that, well, you know, it helps me to understand where you are from your perspective, but I also believe he said that you should be able to learn how to manage your mood and maybe even master it. And to be honest, I was a bit pissed off when he said that. He said, "You know, haven't I got a clinical illness?" and and he said, "You'll always have a predisposition to depression. You've had five episodes. You and everyone else can learn how to manage your mood and maybe even master it." So that really so seed it for me. And what I did was to produce, you know, a moodometer, not to ten. When you're at ten. You know, you're positive, you're energetic, you're resourceful, you're grateful, uh, and I call that the green zone. The top third is the green zone. When you're really low and and in the red zone, you know, you're depressed, anxious, angry, and ashamed. But the more I learned about mood or what psychologists call positive effects, the more I learned that actually Dr. Fisher was right because Sonia leber is a professor from the US who wrote a book called The How of Happiness, and she reviewed over 400 peer-reviewed studies to try and understand what was it that affects our mood or a positive effect, and she determined that it came down to three things. And those three things were genetics, the events that happen in our life, and the actions we take each day. And to cut a long story short, she was able to actually determine the biggest Predictor of our mood is our genetics that contributes fifty percent of our mood, but the second one is the actions we take each day, our intentional actions, and the events that happen in our day is just ten percent. So this is, you know, I reckon, wonderful news because we can't change our genetics, we can't often have very little control over the events that happen in our lives, but we can control what we choose to do each day, and that's what a lot of my seminars with leaders are about: is helping them to identify what they can do each day and to put rituals in place to make sure that it's not to the chance, they do the things that have the best chance of keeping them in the green zone.
0: So effectively it's a structure for managing how you react to certain situations. Is that what I'm hearing you say? Yeah, well it just
1: it tells you that there's certain things that you can do that are shown to be mood boosters. And and it's and it's and it's putting in place practices or rituals that ensure that it happens by default, you know, and I'll give you an example. I, I determined that a really, really important thing for my well-being was getting up and meditating every morning at, at 5 a.m. and then going for a walk in nature in the bush or, go, or doing some exercise. And uh, I noticed that when my practice of meditation declined, my mood would eventually decline. And so I've put a default in my diary <laughs> every morning at 5 a.m. that that's when I get up and, and, and meditate and put, put on a, an alarm at that period of time. Now, that doesn't mean that I do it seven days a week, 365 days a year, but it is a default. And i probably do it, you know, five days out of seven in most weeks. And likewise, you know, who are the really good people in my life that make me feel better being around? How do I, you know, do I schedule time to have with those people? I don't leave it to chance. I proactively organize it. And and likewise, you know, things like exercise. Um, You know, Mayo Clinic had determined that a 30-minute brisk walk improves our mood two hours later, four hours later, six hours later, up to 12 hours later. That's just a brisk walk, a brisk walk. And we can all fit 30 minutes in our day, and they're examples of good practices that we can included our day, which which freshen our mind um, and, and provide energy, quite frankly.
0: So I guess managing our mood and putting structures in place to, you know, keep us in that green zone, as you've described, is is one part of the solution. I guess the other part of the solution, and that's another big focus of your practice, is in this area of resilience and, uh, you know, fostering behaviors that that lead to resilience and and you've written an ebook um you know the seven principles of the resilient leader uh once again this comes back to personal management of of your own mental health can you quickly run us through at a high level what those seven principles are
1: yeah sure um so the first ritual is called live your one thing and so that's really finding out what is your essential thing, that if you do it, 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 you know, it, everything else leads on. And I gave the example of my meditation. That's my one thing. For other people, it can be exercise. For other people, it can be a hobby like gardening, uh, riding their bike, um, having quality time with friends and family. So I take people through a process to help identify what their one thing is, but more importantly, to, to actually make it happen. Ritual two is to recharge daily. And so that's putting physical energy back in the in the tank. And, um, you know, so that's exercise. It's having good sleep. It's having breaks during the day to recharge and make things happen. Ritual three is to nurture self, And that's making quality time to have time with, you know, people that are good for you, people that if you spend time with them, You feel better. Like we all have people that suck the energy out of us, but, you know, making time for those that um, are good for us. Ritual four is to play to strength, and that's about, um, uh, you know, knowing your top five strengths, and I I particularly use the Gallup Strengths Finder. If people use their top five strengths each day, they've been shown to be 600% more engaged in their work, and 300% more likely to report high life satisfaction. So there's great reasons for a leader to know his his or her personal strengths but also to know the strengths of those around around them. Ritual uh, 5 is to recognize that progress is better than perfection. We we can often really beat up on ourselves and uh, uh, be our own worst critic and this is just recognizing that we should be grateful for little steps of progress each day grateful to ourselves and as a leader, we should also recognize the little steps of progress really regularly that our people are making because ultimately that will lead to a um, you know a more motivated and creative workplace. Ritual six is to ask are you okay and this is just an ethos for yourself and and for your group to look out for those that may be having a tough day and uh, reach out to them, ask if if they're going okay, show that uh, you care um, because the greatest predictor of an engaged person, and this is Gallup research, is if someone agrees with this statement, my supervisor or someone at work seems to care about me as a person. They've they've asked that question over 80 million times in 135 countries. The more people that agree with that question, the higher the productivity, the higher the profit, the higher people stay with the organisation, the higher the customer service level. And the the final uh, um, ritual is are you being true to yourself? Are you, you know, living your purpose? And, of course, people need to be able to describe or understand their purpose to know if they are or not, but typically, I really put it down to really three questions. You know, if you think about your last week, did you like yourself? Did you like what you did? Did you like how you did it? And if you can ask, you know, really, if you can score highly on each of those three questions, uh, it's very, very likely that you're living close to your purpose.
0: I can see, Graham, those seven things. I mean, it's very powerful. I mean, if you can incorporate those things. Into your daily, weekly work life, uh, you know, it would naturally create resilience. Um, people can download this ebook from your website?
1: Yeah, it's at uh, grahamcowan.com.au. It's a free copy, and there's also a free little, uh, you know, 20 day course which just goes through each of the, each of the rituals as well.
0: Fantastic. So Graham, we, we, we've talked about, I guess, the individual level. You've talked about the tribal level, and we used Ramsey Healthcare and and another example of ACT Health as examples of where that's happened. Where Where is this going? Where is the future of mental health in the workplace going? And you've done a lot of work in developing some core IP which teaches leaders and organisations how to take care of their mental health. Is there another I guess, future of this, of where it's going? Is there another direction where this is going to now?
1: Yes, it, it is. And um, I think one of the, you know, researchers in this space talk about tertiary level, secondary level and primary level um, ways to address the problem. And tertiary level is just when you try and pick people up after they've fallen over. You know, so someone freaks out, you try and help them. So it's often too little, too, too late. But many organisations are still in that space. The next level is uh, is secondary, and this is where you do training in the workplace. This is uh, you know doing workshops on resilience, workshops on work life integration, etc. And you know a number of organisations are looking at addressing things there. But the ultimate um, success level, and this has been shown to be most successful for both the employer and the employee is the primary level or proactive level. And this is where you're actually looking in advance to try and identify hotspots in your organisation. There could be areas where there's greater absenteeism or greater turnover and trying to look at how you can go to those areas, uh, look at how jobs can be addressed and changed to make it, uh, you know, more rewarding for people to be involved with. So, Ultimately, I think many organisations are trying to move from the secondary level to the proactive level. It's still a long, long way to go, but that is the future. And I I began at the, at the beginning by saying that, you know, the digital revolution is contributing to a lot of this um, uncertainty, volatility in the workplace, but I can also see where the digital revolution will be able to contribute to you know, providing 24-7 services to people who might be struggling on how to get help, you know, what to do and, uh, you know, how to, how to guide yourself and how to, um, you know, help people support you if you're not in great shape. And vice versa, if you're a leader, how you best support someone who might not be in great shape.
0: And, and I believe you're in the process of developing a product to that effect called Factor C. Could Can you tell us a little bit about that project?
1: Yeah, it's a very, very exciting project, and um, what we're saying, Factor like, C, is is a simple and proven mental health leadership mentor as close as your phone. Now, how that's manifesting itself at the moment is a uh, an app for leaders, and it takes them through first of all a a sixty minute course, which they can do any time, any place, um, you know, at, at their own convenience. And it's a very, very engaging way of pa- taking people through a course, to understand, first of all, why this is important and, and why there are tangible business benefits to take this seriously, and then to show them how to uh, in, inside, it, inside the app is what, what I call the eye care framework. And so I as for, identify. It's how you help identify when someone is in great shape. Typically, it's when people are behaving differently. The C is for compassion or emotional support. So it's how you reach out. It's how you ask, are you okay? It's how you, um, you know, encourage the person to open up. The A is for access experts, you know, how you help them find help. That could be through the company's EAP program. It could be through seeing their GP. It could be calling a helpline, a support line. R is for revitalizing work, and all the evidence shows that if people are at work, it, it speeds up their recovery. Their, their work hours might be decreased, but they are better off being at work than being at home themselves staring at the ceiling, particularly if they live alone. And finally, the E is for exercise. And um, and if people are interested in that general concept, that eye care framework, if they Google my name, Graham Cowan, I Care, they will also access a video um, that explains how that applies and how they could apply it themselves, and also a free um, poster, which again takes them through the I Care methodology, and it's designed to, um, you know, give people the skills to help those around them. Because, in my experience, most people want to help, but they don't often ha- know how to help and so they tend to a- a- avoid even asking the are you okay question because they fear they'll get the answer no
0: yeah absolutely and, and look i mean i'm looking at the brochure of factor c now and effectively it's an app that can be used on a smartphone computer etc that really gives you all the tools you need to take people through that framework is, is that a correct assumption that i'm making
1: yeah that's right and you know we've 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 only just launched this first prototype. We wanted to co-develop with some large employers this year, but we've just been – we showed it to six really large employers in Melbourne two weeks ago, and we're just blown away by the positive response. And we're also, uh, this Thursday and Friday, showing it to a number of Sydney-based organisations that are seeking solutions. And, you know, I think the other element which I think is changing is that organizations are now recognizing the cost of doing this wrong. And to give you an example, in the public sector, you know, mental distress and stress leave is the biggest or close to the biggest cost to an organization in terms of absenteeism and stress leave. The average claim per person is $340,000 per person. So, and if you have a, a few of those claims, your workers' comp or, um, you know, uh, workers' comp premiums go through the roof. So increasingly, you know, what is really gratifying is that CEOs are seeing that this needs to be on their agenda. It, it has to be on their agenda if they're going to, you know, navigate a lot of the uncertainty that's that's out there, but more importantly, to make sure that the people that they want to follow them and want to inspire are in good shape so that they're motivated to do the right thing as well.
0: As I read through this brochure, there's one thing that stood out for me and and that's a statement there that says caring is the new unfair advantage. Mm. I've got to say when I first read that, I was probably a little cynical. I was probably sitting a little bit on the cynical side and I dare say there's probably some leaders out there who are going, you know, how could you possibly caring has any kind of financial advantage to it? But then as I read through the brochure, there's a fascinating statistic here around return on investment um, and there's been some studies done around that. For, for those of us that are sort of sitting a little bit on the cynical side, can you run through how this is now actually being you know, seen to actually have a real ROI attached to it?
1: Yeah, well, you know, the, the number you're referring to is a P, PWC study which looked at you know, what is the return on doing good mental health practices in the workplace. And they determined that it was 230%. So you spend a dollar, you get $2.30 back. So very, very tangible benefits. There have been other studies done as well. For example, the Black Dog Institute have done a study looking at if you train leaders on basic um, mental health literacy and how to help people, they've actually shown in the studies they've done a 998% return on investment. And you'll also see there, Brad. There's a number of other studies that that we've published there, which show that caring and support does lead to fantastic results. And now, a lot of your a lot of your listeners are in the new digital world. And I think the most telling thing here is Google and innovation and um, innovation powers like IDEO have actually determined through rigorous research. The number one predictor of their best teams, the ones that deliver all the time, the first factor is psychological safety. And what that means is that people, there is interpersonal trust, people care for each other, look out for each other, but it also means they feel safe to take risks. They feel safe to take modest risks and know that they won't be sacrificed along the way. So Google have done pretty well in the last 20 years, and that that is now the core of their business in terms of how they try to train team leaders and progress them. And I think, you know, many of the listeners to this, um, you know, this, this podcast would should be able to relate to that.
0: Yeah, look, I mean, it's compelling, you know, and, and you mentioned the studies here and uh, the one I'm looking at is from Lancet Psychiatry and which says for every dollar spent on training managers to support their team's mental health, a return of over $9 has been achieved. Yeah. And I guess also, just picking up on what you said about innovation, you can't innovate in an environment where you don't have any psychological safety, as you said. So, this is truly compelling. And I think for any leaders who are sort of sitting a little bit on the cynical side, it's certainly worth looking into a little bit more. Um, you know, it's fascinating discussion, Graham, and I thank you for coming in and giving us some insights today. I guess I just want to close by turning our attention to individuals and I'm sure there's people who are listening to this who, are, who, who may be sitting, you know, fairly low down in an organisation who are thinking I can put myself in this picture and I can get this feeling that my organisation doesn't really care that much or at least that's how I feel. You know, we've talked a lot about leaders embracing this. What about the individual worker? What would be your tips or ideas to them? as to how to start a journey where they can feel more psychologically safe within their workplace?
1: Yeah, it's a really good question. And, you know, it's been shown that that leaders determine 70% of the engagement in any team. So leaders have a huge impact on this. But as an individual employee, I think one thing I, I ask people to do is to really reflect on the best team you've ever been in. And that could be, you know, like a year nine netball team or a footy team or working on a school fade. It could be a current role, it could be a previous role. And I ask people, what was different? What was different about that team compared to the rest of the teams you've been on? And people always come up with the same thing. You know, they say that you know, we cared for each other, they say we had a common goal, they say we had each other's back, they say we had complementary strengths. And I just and I just put this challenge out. Okay, back in when you were in that role, what we what was your contribution to that? How did you contribute? And maybe try that where you are now. It could be just getting to know the rest of your team better, because that is a fundamental element of psychological safety. Greater awareness of, uh, you know, what each other are all about, what they value, what they prize their family. That's what I mean. That caring is the new entrepreneur advantage. We're so busy. We're forgetting to have those conversations, which were more prevalent. They were more prevalent before, you know, there was just constant interruptions and, uh, it's carving out time to have, uh, quality relationships with those around you.
0: Yeah, really pertinent, Graham. And, and once again, you know, I think you've hit the nail on the head. I know for me if I was to ask myself that question and, and put my hand up and say I've been guilty both as a leader and as employee with this, you know, I, I've found in the teams that I've been most happiest with, I knew my role and I didn't overextend myself and I could trust other people around me that they knew their role and they weren't willing to overextend themselves. And I think in today's workplace, with the bombardment of information and the bombardment of emails that we get, we overextend ourselves continuously and potentially take on too much. And that, the knock-on effect of that leads to a lack of trust that starts developing amongst teammates, which then has a knock-on effect for you know, people's psychological safety. Would you agree with that statement?
1: Yeah, Definitely. Definitely. And, yeah. and and I think the research shows that.
0: So, Graham, how can people connect with you? You've mentioned a couple of things, but but ultimately if people are listening to this and they're like either a leader or a worker and I'd like to find out a little bit more, how can people connect with you?
1: Uh, I'm probably probably my most active uh, social media is LinkedIn. I'm very active on that. I share, you know, world leading research around um, employee well being, team well being on a regular basis. I also have a couple of groups in in um, in LinkedIn. One called Creating Thriving Tribes, and the other one called Back from the Brink Work Support. Um, creating Thriving Tribes around creating mentally healthy workplaces. Back from the Brink is p- for people who have struggled and uh, you know want to interrelate with people, other people in their situation. And of course, uh, you know, via the website, I have a number of uh, resources, including. That uh, poster, the seven rituals for the resilient leader, plus the free, uh, uh, you know, 20-day course that you get when you sign up for that. So, they're probably the best ways in the, uh, in the first
0: instance. Fantastic. Well, Graham, it's been an absolute honour talking to you today. Uh, thanks for dropping by.
1: My pleasure, Brad. Thanks for, uh, thanks for the interview.